Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, we're joined by Shira Center, political editor for the Boston Globe, who discussed media coverage of Donald Trump, as well as the relationship between Trump supporters and the press. She also discussed the Boston Globe's New Hampshire primary coverage, public reaction to the Globe's fake front page about President Trump, and the inner workings of Donald Trump's campaign. Moderating the event is Tom Patterson, Interim Director of the Shorenstein Center. Well, we're just delighted to have uh, Shira Center here from the from the Boston Globe, uh, editor in the political coverage, uh, among other things, editing uh, this 2016 interesting campaign, to say the least. Um, previously was uh, politics editor at Roll Call. Uh, many of you are familiar with the role that that outlet plays on Capitol Hill. And... Uh, we were fortunate to have Shira here at the Kennedy School uh, two years ago when she was a fellow at the Institute of Politics. Shira, welcome. Thank welcome you. Back. Thank you yeah. so much. It's great yeah. to be back. Yeah. Uh, it's an absolute honor to be here today and to talk about our coverage and coverage in general of 2016. Um, as Tom mentioned, I, uh, I am a politics editor for the Boston Globe. I, my primary duties for most of last year was coordinating our New Hampshire primary coverage. At the Boston Globe, we considered New Hampshire part of our metropolitan area. So we got to cover that as a race that was in our backyard in many ways. So that was really fun. Now I am uh, helping with our 2016 coverage. We work in conjunction with our uh, Washington, D.C. Bureau to cover the candidates. And uh, just a little bit of note of background about the Globe before I'll just dive right into Trump uh, and what effect and how he's permeated almost every aspect of this 2016 race. You know, the Globe has a tradition of covering the national candidates. I think this is an interesting cycle for the Globe, not just because of Donald Trump, but because the last few cycles, we've had the benefit of having a hometown candidate in the race. We had Kerry, then we had Romney twice. This cycle is a little different, so I see it as an opportunity to be quite creative, especially in the midst of a lot of changes in our industry. Uh, so. Donald Trump. Um, let's just rewind a little bit to uh, last summer when he announced his campaign. Uh, I think at the time, uh, a lot of people, a lot of members of the media did not take him seriously. Uh, you know, some might say with good reason. Uh, he had teased a run many times before. He, he didn't, this time we weren't even sure until he announced he was going to do it, that he was going to do it. And I use this phrase often in the two or three months following his announcement. Yeah, ever, do you remember the term date Dean Mary Carey, right? This was the analogy Democrats used in 2004 to talk about how, you know, Howard Dean was a really fun guy to date, but in the end you want to marry Carey because he was a more reliable nominee. All right, you get the analogy. It's not that hard. So, um, you know, or sometimes I would also compare him to the flavor of the month of the 2016 cycle. A 2012 cycle that Republicans had, where you had Herman Cain popular for about three weeks and then he'd fall, right? This really odd cycle that happened with Michelle Bachman and several other candidates. So with that as the background, that is how what we use to evaluate the Trump surge. It was August, right? And I think with a few exceptions, one of them being one of our own reporters, a lot of people missed it because that was the framework they were going in thinking about Donald Trump's candidacy, that eventually he would fall. We, of course, uh, know how that ended, especially in New Hampshire. Um, I will just give one little shout out to one of my reporters, James Pindle, who is, knows everything about New Hampshire politics. 
Uh, he did well, he did rankings of the New Hampshire primary, right? He, he's a digital first reporter, so he writes a whole lot of online friendly content. And he would rank the candidates, one through 17 at some point, on uh, how likely they would be to win the New Hampshire primary. And the first time he did the rankings, which was in early summer, before Trump was officially in, he put Trump as number four, and he got so much feedback and not very good feedback from readers about it. They just couldn't believe he would even dare to put Trump as number four on this list. Well, later in the summer, he was number two on the list when we redid the list. And then later on, he was number one continuously. So I think it was very clear for most of the media by the fourth quarter of last year that Trump was the front runner, capital T, the front runner. And in many ways, it was too late then. You know, the Trump train had already left the station. And I wonder, I think we did a good job of this because we were so close to New Hampshire. But I do wonder if some national news organizations regret not trying to understand the Trump voter more earlier last fall. You saw a whole wave of stories coming out, I'd say in December, January, who are these Trump voters? Mostly male, not college educated, right? All of these demographic factors that make up the Trump voter. And I wonder if we didn't do a disservice to our readers, we being the general we media, not the Boston Globe, because again, I thought we did a good job in this, uh, is by not trying to figure that out earlier in the cycle. So a couple, so I have a couple points like this. Some of them are related, some of them not so related. If you have a question in the middle of it, we can go to that. You can save your questions for later. Um, the other dynamic, the other Trump factor that really, I think, affected the way we cover this race was Trump's use of social media and the role of cable news. So the way news organizations are structured, news organizations, I'd say, that work in written words, Every major news organization has kind of a breaking news desk, right? People who write stuff up very quickly, they're usually younger reporters or people who are even digital producers. Um, and so every t these people often seek, usually seek traffic as a goal, right? And when Donald Trump says something outlandish, it gets a lot of attention. And I have to give him credit. This is very smart. He would always put it out on national media, and he was always very available. He would call in any cable news show by phone and allow news organizations to really just feed into that catnip for the web a lot of times. So, you know, that was part of his strategy. I don't know if it's the strategy he thought of or laid out or it's just kind of how he evolved. But I think it took advantage of the fact that this is the way a lot of newsrooms are set up to just kind of pounce on those quick hit breaking news things that he would put out in a tweet several times a day. Um, you've probably seen, if you're here, it means you probably pay attention to the media and media's dynamics, so you've probably seen some charts floating around about how much free media Donald Trump got on the cable networks, right? This was obviously a huge dynamic in the race. This is why the guy has not spent very much money on television advertising, because he is on so many cable networks all the time. And I think it puts a lot of news anchors, I, I say this as someone who's not been in television, I've only ever been in print, but I can imagine it would put some of them in uncomfortable positions because talking about Trump, as we saw with how much CNN was <laughs> charging for advertising during their debates, right? talking about Trump, you get good ratings. You know, this is the way it goes. But uh, on the other hand, it was feeding the beast and feeding the cycle of talking about Trump all the time and making him the dynamic in the race. Um, and then finally, uh, also along the lines of Trump and social media is just the number of debates. Oddly, the Republican National Committee set out this year to have fewer debates, kind of minimize their impact. 
Uh, and then two things happened. Democrats had even fewer debates than Republicans, and they had them at really, let's say, inaccessible times, like Saturday at 9 p.m. or Sunday 9 p.m. at a holiday weekend. And then Trump happened as well. So the debates, instead of having, um, let's say, less influential effect on the race, they had a much bigger influence on the race because of Donald Trump and also the frequency, relative frequency. Um, another thing along these notes, well, I think a lot of news organizations were focusing on the quick hits of Donald Trump, what he says on Twitter. I think a lot of deep dives into his record were just not explored. I think a lot of news organizations are getting to that now. Uh, so a couple thoughts on that. First, I, I would point to some of our deep dives that I thought were really good. Donald Trump's college years. You know, we, we've looked into several things, but it, Donald Trump is a businessman who has made a lot of money in New York. I guarantee you we have only scratched the surface of what we know about him compared to about what we know about the other candidates, especially Hillary Clinton or Jeb Bush. And I wonder, this fall especially, in the same way a lot of news organizations didn't really try to better understand the Trump voter, they didn't really dig as deeply into Trump's background as, as we could have. Um, and in the end, uh, this, is, this is the result. I'm not, I'm not saying he got a free pass, certainly. I think Donald Trump would disagree with that, but, uh, and I do as well. But it did affect the Trump train speed out of the station. And it did, I mean, it did not hurt, it did not stall his momentum. The flip side of that is the people who support Trump, what we've learned from talking to them, really don't care. They don't care that much what we write. I mean, if we're in the business of trying to write truth and stories and raise the curtain on a lot of these <coughs> candidates and do that, in terms of the impact of our reporting, and not just ours, I mean general media, not just Boston Globe, it doesn't matter that much to a lot of Trump supporters who will support him no matter what, no matter what he says or how he says it. So that's something I have to say I've personally struggled with a little bit in this in this campaign is just the role of the news media given that dynamic given we're dealing with 20 to 40 percent of the republican primary electorate who will support him no matter what anyone writes or anyone says okay um i do think we will see a whole lot more about trump in the coming weeks uh in terms of his record there just must be so much there um finally uh on this point I don't think we can underestimate the effects of, as Trump, as Trump might say, a huge GOP field on covering this race. Uh, I think it affected a lot of our decisions at the Globe. As late as December or January, you're still looking at a dozen Republican candidates in the race, and we had to make daily decisions who would get a staffer, who would we send a reporter to cover that day or not. And uh, as a result, you'd always send someone to cover Trump. There was no question. Every time Trump came to the state, every time Hillary came to state, every time Bernie came to the, came to New Hampshire, we would send someone to cover them. Um, everyone else, it, we couldn't always make that decision every time. Uh, and that's part of because they were leading in the polls and also because there was news value in covering them all the time. But especially news organizations with smaller staffs, I don't know, in a state like Iowa or South Carolina, a few days before the primary, we had a dozen reporters on the New Hampshire primary. We could, in those final days, we could cover everyone. But especially if you're in South Carolina or Iowa in a smaller news organization, it must have been very difficult for them to be on these guys all the time. Um, the other effect I think the huge GOP field had on covering this race was it made 
the math of that, when Trump was really just hovering around 22 percent or so, but still leading the polls through uh, October, November, December, January, it made it more difficult to really take him seriously as a candidate because it was still, in the end, 22 percent of the vote. And until we really sought to understand who these Trump voters are and how angry they were and how anti-establishment they were, I think it was hard for us to really come to grips with he was the candidate we needed to bet seriously because he is, you know, he is the capital T front runner. And then, so we can talk about any of that. I'll take, happy to take your questions. I will just <coughs> add one more note. I am curious, this is a wonderful attendance here today. I'm quite pleased. Uh, but um, some of you might be here to ask about our fake Trump cover on, uh, <laughs> on Sunday. Um, so I had nothing to do with that. Um, I, you, can, <laughs> you can ask my thoughts on it. I'm happy to share them. Uh, but I found out the same way our readers did. This was an editorial side project. Uh, I saw it online on Saturday and on my doorstep on Sunday morning. And that's how I knew about it. So again, I'll, I'll share my thoughts on it. But I can't talk about the production or why it was done. Uh, the Globe, of course, does a very good job of keeping editorial separate from our newsroom staff. So. Sorry to disappoint if any of you wanted no, to hear sure. me say thank that. You. No, no, thank you. So, <clears throat> action. So, I will pick up on your invitation to talk about that section. Sure. Um, very unusual. I don't, I don't know how many of you saw it, and you may need to describe it a little bit for for those that didn't see it. But um, <clears throat> what's the reflected judgment in the at the Globe? On it? Not not what they might have been thinking in doing it, but what do they think now? about that particular decision? Well, I am, again, that's kind of an editorial conversation, right. so I'm not in no, no, those conversations not, but, but, about but, the reactions. But, but the fact that, that it was done brought it to the whole Globe community, in a sense, right? Yeah. I mean, so everybody noticed it. I'm sure everybody talked about it, right? <laughs> just a little so, bit on Monday morning, just so, a little bit. And I'm sure there's diversity of opinion about it. But I, I, I'm just curious yeah. about whether there are some modalities there that sure. you find interesting. Well, I have a great spot where I sit in the newsroom, which is right next to what I call the front lines, our uh, co-ops from college area schools, which answer the main newsroom lines. So you hear all of the calls coming in, what people are really asking about when they call the newsroom. Uh, this was especially uh, stressful for them during the delivery crisis earlier this year, and now they have the Trump cover, so stellar pair of uh, people answering our phones this uh, semester. In any case, uh, they... I mean, I overheard them. I went to the office on Sunday, too. Most of the calls they got were negative. Pe readers were, were not happy with it. That said, I'll just <coughs> preface this saying, you usually only call if you're really mad, right? If you really liked it. Mm. I mean, you might call and say, that was great. We got one. I overheard one of those calls this morning saying, I want to renew my subscription to the Globe. This was so smart, you know. Um, Double doubled the circulation. <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> I wish. I wish. Um, but it was, um, you know, for the most part, there are people have called. They've been angry. I think there's some discussion in the newsroom whether it was done for this kind of sugar high traffic bump. I don't see. I think our editorial people are much smarter than that. I mean, why? What would be the purpose of doing that just for one traffic spike that doesn't serve the news organization at all? Um, I, you know, I thought in many ways it, it was it was quite smart. I mean, you haven't envisioned it. I think it made a really bold statement. I don't think it's something the Globe should do every month. Uh, but I, you know, my personal opinion is when I saw it in the newspaper, I was like, oh, that's an idea. That'll make an impact, you know? 
But and the flip side of that, as I mentioned earlier, is do did a single Trump supporter read that and change the way they think about Donald Trump because they saw that cover? What do you guys think? Yeah. I think the floor is open to any questioner. Yes, sir. Oh, oh, could you introduce yourself? I'm to sorry, the, my yeah. name is Gil Sloan, retired financials advisor. Cool. Some years ago. Anyway, uh, the question about the publication. Do you keep a track of, could you keep a track as to how many publications were sold that day versus the normal publication? Like, how well was it received and did you prepare to to get more publications, more copies out for the public. Yeah, you know, I actually, I'm sure there, are, I'm sure they have numbers on that. I actually don't know. Um, I our Sunday circulation, as you might guess, is much larger than our than our daily circulation. So that obviously makes an impact. But the, you know, hundreds of, well, I probably shouldn't say a number. Uh, but I I don't know the exact number if they sold more. I can tell you the volume of calls they received in the newsroom on Sunday was certainly greater than other Sundays that I've been there. <laughs> and Mondays as well. Please. Hi. Um, I'm Elizabeth Guckenheimer. I'm a member of the community and a voter. So, you know, Great. this is a big interest to me. Um, what I'm interested in is it's the economy, stupid, right? Mm -hmm. But what we seem to be getting in this election is a perception it's not the same economy for everybody. So this kind of segmentation, you know, the other yeah. big overlooked demographic were the young voters going for Bernie, I think. You know, so so this, this um, what really interests me are all the things that we, the analysts, you know, we the public, everybody else seem to miss about who we really are. Mm -hmm. You know, it's this is turning up to me a new America that we did that we you know some of us don't recognize everybody in it, yeah. and I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. Well, first I'll say uh, that Brian McGorry, our editor in chief, has made covering income inequality, especially in Boston, a major priority for the newspaper. Uh, he reminds us regularly of this that this is a defining issue of our time, and I completely agree with you that this is a you know, this is a new economy where some people are getting very far ahead and some people are getting further behind. Uh, and I do think that is part of what has played into Trump's appeal. It's the people who are either staying where they are or getting further behind that are fueling Trump's candidacy. We, this is not a guess. We see this in exit poll data. Uh, the, then the rich, then you know, the richer subset of people who are not more, who are much less likely to be Trump supporters. So, which is actually an interesting notion for the Republican Party, which is at a crossroads in many ways, and who their next electorate's going to be. But that's another question. Yeah. Shira, I'm Dan Kennedy. I'm a show and team of course. this semester. I follow um, you on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, before the Trump cover, there was already big Globe news last week, and that was Brian McGrory's memo about, you know, it's time to reinvent the Globe from top to bottom. No idea will not be considered. And um, I was wondering if you could tell me uh, what the reaction to that has been inside the globe? What kind of ideas are people coming up with? And I'm curious to know what would be your number one idea for reinvention? Wow. Um, that's, a, that's a lot of questions. Um, so I think uh, McGrory's call for reinvention was 
a call for creativity, which I really like in the newsroom. So I, I certainly welcomed it. And from, you know, this is not an official survey, but chatter amongst my colleagues felt, I think, was shared that sentiment. We all, you know, took this as an opportunity to rethink about the things we do. And I think when they say reinvention, they really mean that all ideas can be on the table. Everything from, and this is not, uh, I'm not speaking to specific ideas, these are things I've kind of heard, but not, you know, not officially discussed by any means. You know, talks, let's say newsroom chatter, best low-level newsroom chatter. Everything from, you know, moving around beat structures. What stories do we really need to write up? What is really important to our readership? Is it is it crime stories or is it bigger pieces, right? It's a really, it's a wholesale look at what we cover. And, I mean, I welcome it. I think we should talk about this, you know, every month, uh, you know, every year. In terms of ideas, obviously, my personal opinion um, is that we need to connect the paper more to the digital, right? Uh, that's the that I think is the the main idea, and we're moving towards that in a lot of ways. We've re, we've kind of restructured some of our meeting schedules as well. I know that sounds small, but it's that that actually yeah, leads to a lot of newsroom planning uh, and it affects that. And I think it's made a big difference in terms of the way people think about publishing, not for the next day's paper, but for the next various news cycles online. Herb. I want to go back to that, the, the Trump cover. Sure. And, uh, of all the pieces on it, the little one in the lower left-hand corner really caught my eye that Trump was shortlisted for the Nobel Peace Prize because after 1,340 1, years, he was able to make peace between the, Sh the Shia and the Sunni. Uh, you can just give my compliments to the editor. <laughs> Why don't you give a call to the newsroom, give, our, give the people on the phones a nice, a nice word in their ears? Well, make you think about premature Nobel Prizes. <laughs> there was that, too, yes. Yeah, I think there there were some very clever takes on the on that front page. I mean, this is this is unexplored for many of the reasons I laid out earlier. Is what really would a Trump presidency be like? There was so much in covering Trump. I think, especially in the early stages, where reporters would ask themselves, "Does he really mean that? Does he really know all the implications of what he just said?" You know, and I think the Globe editorial and and what some might say was a controversial way laid that out. Marilyn, yeah. Um, hi, Cher. I'm Marilyn Thompson. I'm a Shorenstein fellow as well. Um, and I really enjoyed your presentation. I came here from Politico. Oh, wonderful. Um, so we wrestle with some of the same issues. Uh, my question is this. Trump has made very clear in his own writings how he views the media and what his strategy is for getting more coverage. Mm -hmm. um, using this phrase, uh, truthful hyperbole uh, in the art of the deal. Um, so as you reflect back on it, I'm just curious what the bottom line is. Did, did he play us or did we play him? What do I, those are my only two choices. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, is, I'll pref I can say I, I certainly think he played cable news. Like that is, I have no doubt in my mind that that's, he totally played cable news. I mean, they also made money, I guess, so good for them, they're still in business, but uh, I think he totally played cable news. If anything, if you're looking at the different different types of 
media out there. If I don't like the way this is going to come out, but he played print the least just because of what he does doesn't actually translate to print um, the paper as well as it does to other mediums, in my opinion. As such, you know, Donald Trump is a boisterous guy. Part of his, I think, the reason he makes news is the way he says stuff that comes across differently in audio or in television. So let me interject there because I saw some data that, um, you know, I, I don't think his campaign kind of fits as well for print, but yeah. uh, the data that are out there show that every print outlet, including the New York Times, gave mm -hmm. Trump a huge amount of front page exposure relative to all of the other competitors. So, sure. yeah, I mean, it's it's a different medium, so it played differently, but in terms of the bottom line of about how much exposure relative to the alternatives, uh, the picture is pretty much the same. Yeah. So. Um, uh, no, I just is that a question? To, or no, no, or I just wanted to add that into the... Yeah. Into the mix. Yeah, please. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jen. I'm a student here and surviving the, the push right in the last few weeks of school. Um, Best of you, luck. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned that you think that some outlets should regret not trying more to, to understand the Trump voter more. I'm wondering, not being from the East Coast or anywhere near it, um, what impact do you think that, that having the centers of media power um, on this part of the country have on that? Uh, I think it had a big impact. And just to be clear, I don't think people sought to understand the Trump voter um, early enough. I think they did eventually. That's why we saw this wave of, like, demographic stories, you know, uh, right before the primaries, I think. Uh, I think that has an impact. I would be interested to see, uh, and reporters don't usually, aren't supposed to take surveys, but if they did, in terms of media on the coast, how many of them have friends who support Donald Trump? Right. I, I mean, maybe I, I could totally surprise me, but, you know, apparently the barber who cuts my husband's hair in Southie is a Trump supporter. Right. But it's, you know, in terms of how many people really know someone who supports Donald Trump, who maybe isn't an extended member of their family. I think that that could have played into it. Please. Yeah. I'm wondering, you talked about the Trump voter you know, not really caring about looking beneath the hood or um, what's, what's really going on there. Has that changed the editorial process at all? Just the disinterest in um, I'm happy to report no. I think we're still going to, we, we still do what we do. And uh, I think covering Trump is different than covering a whole lot of other candidates for reasons I can, I can go into. But it doesn't change our job or responsibility to vet him or to write about him or anything like that. I mean, we also have to remember who the globe audience is, right? And they are, they are interested in politics. I see the analytics numbers all the time. Uh, so they want to read about Trump, you know, even if they aren't necessarily a Trump supporter. You know, and our, I, have, I should also say our goal as a news organization is never to change people's minds. You know, it's to inform people. It's to educate readers. Hi, I'm Joanna Dunaway. I'm a short scene fellow as well. And this is probably an unfair question, but I just got... Great. Um, not that kind, not that kind. You'll see. Um, it's just unfair because it's kind of asking you about the future, I guess. Which oh. is, I'm wondering what you think is the next sort of looming, most interesting storyline or narrative that's going to proceed for the next several weeks of the campaign. 
so depending what happens in New York, if Trump has a blowout in New York, this won't be the case. But for whatever reason, he doesn't get winner take all on the statewide level or the congressional district level. It'll be all about contested convention. Like if, if we haven't heard enough about it, you guys are probably already familiar with, but that means it is, just gets extremely likely that we're headed there. And so it's going to be all, it's going to be like three months of convention coverage leading up to Cleveland. May, June, July, yes, three months. Please. Probably feel longer than that. No. Right here. Please. <clears throat> Hi, my name is Rachel Cartmell. I work here at the school. And I'm thinking about the, the, the at least surprising to me, popularity of Trump mm -hmm. and how that really demonstrates how many citizens are disenfranchised and feel unconnected to what's happening in Washington in particular. So mm -hmm. they're looking for this alternative. But Bernie is sort of saying the same thing. So there are all these different groups that are saying Washington stinks. You, know, you don't represent us, and how can you be talking about you representing the majority when in fact it's pretty much 50-50 and really nobody's representing the majority. Hmm. So from, from your position as a, as a um, you know, working at the Globe, how do you address this issue that it sort of reveals, which is this, this distrust in Washington, D.C., where they feel like you're not representing, who are you representing? Which I think if you peel back a number of different, whether Republican or Democrat, that's what we see. And so I wonder about how we communicate that to how do we get away from Trump and covering Trump all the time and communicating that to me, which seems like a core issue, which we never really, I don't feel like we get to often enough. Uh, you raise a really good point. We sent a reporter to uh, Jim O'Sullivan to Aliquippa, Pennsylvania uh, last week, where there's a Pennsylvania primary later this month. Aliquippa is kind of this former steel mill town. I'm, I'm originally from uh, around that area. And we sent him to talk to Trump voters because we, according to state registration data, a lot of Democrats had switched to the registration to Republicans in Pennsylvania. And we wanted to see why that was. And he was surprised because once again, he found out how many voters were vacillating between Trump and Bernie and Trump and Sanders, right? It seems if you're really into politics, like how could someone, they're so different, how could someone really be trying to choose between those two? But we found the same thing in New Hampshire all the time. It's like the same people were Trump, Bernie, or Kasich. Sorry, I don't mean to refer to Bernie by his first name all the time. Um, but uh, Trump, Sanders, or Kasich. And I think that speaks to what you're saying, this general dissatisfaction with Washington and the establishment, whether or not they're Republicans or independents or even in some cases Democrats. And then the other point you brought up was what is this disconnect exactly between voters who are so dissatisfied with Washington? Why are they so dissatisfied with Washington? And I think a lot of it has to do with Congress. I covered Congress for 10 years um, and just the results metric. People don't think you know, Congress is getting anything done. Many, many charts floating around can show you that they are less productive than they have been in prior years. So I think part of it's that. Um, you know, it used to be love, uh, hate Congress, love my congressmen, but that isn't even proving true as often anymore. So I think you raise a good point. I think there's probably even more to it than that, that people are just feeling disconnected to their politicians, either because of a wealth gap or because of a results gap with Congress. So let me ask you a follow-up before you. A quick follow-up. Yeah, I wanted to do one, too. So, um, uh -oh. so the question for me, <clears throat> so... Um, you know, I think when you look at, at the perceptions of many of these voters, that the media is in the same category as the people in Washington, right? So you're part of the establishment, you're part of the problem. Uh, has there been any kind of sense that 
we need to, we, meaning the media, need to step back and not only think about kind of where they're coming from and their attitudes toward the political establishment, but one reason I think that it's almost like water off the back when you criticize Trump is the media have lost a lot of credibility uh, with this particular segment of America, right? So has it provoked any kind of reflective... Um, not recently in specific discussions that I've been involved yeah. in. Like, that's yeah. not something we have discussed, at least in meetings I've been in, as, you know, part of our larger political mm -hmm. coverage, this disconnect. But um, it's, you know, I do think it is notable that, you know, there, there's such a large contingency of Trump supporters mm -hmm. who completely distrust the media, completely mm -hmm. distrust mainstream media. I will also say I think it's notable for how much Trump bashes us, how willing he is to get on the phone and call any kind of show. Or I mean, there was one week where he was really kicking the, either the Times or the Post. And then if you added it up, he w did like two hours worth of interviews with that publication that week. You know, so I think he tries to have it both ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah please. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to follow up on Jim O'Sullivan's story in Pennsylvania. Sure. Um, you say you know that part of Pennsylvania. I, I don't. Is there any substantial African-American or Latino population there? Uh, because it, it seemed that he only checked in with white voters, but maybe that's all there is there. So um, I'm from Pittsburgh originally, which is about 20 miles south of mm. there, uh, of Aliquippa, which is just kind of down the Ohio River towards Ohio. Uh, and did he, Pittsburgh itself does not, I haven't looked at census figures lately, but it does not have a large Latino population. Mm. Uh, at least compared to cities like Boston or Philadelphia or definitely nothing near the uh, New York. Uh, it does have a larger African-American population. Uh, he, the purpose of his story was to look at this notion of Reagan Democrats, who were defined as mostly white. Mm. With, or, so he did purposely seek out Reagan Democrats to speak to and interview it for, when looking at this story. Aliquippa, to my knowledge, I don't know the percent, the diversity percentages there. I would say I'd be very surprised, though, if there were any semblance of a large Latino population there. But again, I, yeah. I don't, I wouldn't. I could look on the census website, but I won't. Okay. I'll go By further. The way, I'm old enough to remember when people were saying, "Do I go with McGovern or <laughs> do I go with George Wallace?" So it was a very similar dynamic yeah. in 1972. <laughs> <laughs> Please, yeah. There was an article, I think, in the Times yesterday about how Trump has, there's a lot more attack ads towards him versus him towards others. And I was wondering kind of what you think of how he's running his campaign and whether you think that will, I mean, he has like a smaller campaign staff as well than other traditional campaigns. So yeah. how do you view that in terms of political kind of power and how do you think that will change as the election becomes in the return? Well, he's already since... Since Corey Lewandowski was charged uh, as campaign manager, he's already kind of retooled a couple things. He brought in Paul Manafort, who's uh, kind of sort of supposed to be like an insider delegate specialist to him. So he's, without saying it, because Donald Trump doesn't usually admit that he's wrong, I think those moves were taken by a lot of people as, okay, we need to rearrange some things around here. And then he also lost Wisconsin. So uh, I do think it is, he might be... I'm the last person to tell Donald Trump what he should be doing, but 
after covering campaigns for a decade plus, I can say that small of a staff to accomplish something on a national scale is extremely difficult. And you're starting to see that bear out in these delegate contests in Colorado and South Carolina. I mean, this is the great advantage I think Hillary had for months on end was she had all of this organized in advance. And that's how she got a, a, um, an advantage over Bernie for a while in the fall, I think, is because she had all of this set up. So I, you know, since especially since he's never run for office before, he doesn't have a collection of trusted aides who have been laying this out for him for a long time. So I think it, he's He's about to get challenged unless he can really move to wage this delegate fight in the next three months. Yes, sir. <coughs> My name is Yerkun Dukumov. I'm a HK student of the Mid-Gurgia program. And <coughs> I work as a minister of foreign affairs in my country. And as a diplomat, I always try to be impartial and neutral. But <coughs> when I return to my country, my boss, my minister may ask me, like, what do you think about Donald Trump? Uh, does he does he ready for presidency? How would you respond for this question? First, I want to know how you responded. What did you say? <laughs> I don't know because um, uh, he's a, as, a, as a person really like stand out from other other presidents, right? And he's a kind of puzzle for me. Yeah. So. I'm not American. I, I don't know who is uh, Trump, Trump's people. Yeah. And we we don't know. We don't know other than what he speculated on who his vice president nominee could be, who would be in his cabinet. We don't have a whole lot of clues in that regard. For all we know, he could he could point appoint his wife to the cab. Like there are so many things he could do that we don't know, and I wouldn't put. I wouldn't put a whole lot of it past him if he, he's the president, considering his unorthodox campaign so far. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have uh, relatives, close family abroad as well, and the, sometimes they ask me about the Trump phenomenon as well. And one thing I do, I did say until about a month or two ago, is in terms of reflecting on the American population at large. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the just the percentage of people who've gone into a voting booth and pulled a lever for Trump, you know, it seems like this whole national movement, but it's actually with the exception maybe of the Massachusetts Republican primary, not a whole lot of people. You're talking about either caucuses, which are the most ardent party supporters who go in and caucus for a certain candidate, or you're talking about Republican primaries where you don't actually have a large percentage of the state as a whole or even the state's registered voters necessarily turning out. Um, although I guess in some states it was larger this year than, uh, than in previous years. But you're not talking about still a majority of the country by any means. In fact, polls show exactly the opposite. They show 70 percent of the country has an unfavorable uh, sense of Donald Trump. On the back, please. Just staying on Trump, I'm curious. Jerry, um, one of the things about his campaign that's fascinating is reliance on Twitter. Yeah. Um, Whether Donald Trump is the one writing those tweets. So 
My understanding is from what other people have written about this, uh, it's a great story. I think he does have someone who kind of helps him, but he right, he does, my sense is he does do a lot of it on his own. I think it was Gabriel Sherman wrote a great article in New York Magazine last week about Trump's operation and looking into that. And it was either there or somewhere else that he's even written lines in his own campaign ads. So he is, you know, he is directly involved with how his campaign is presented. Joanna, you got another one? Oh, and there's someone behind you. Oh, um, I'm John Jolly. I'm a John Johnson fellow as well. And Great. I'm a BBC journalist. And so I really understand cool. what you were saying earlier about how when news comes in, you've got a team of people just kind of writing it up and getting out breaking news really quickly. And, and I understand how that's favoured Donald Trump. But do you think we should be looking at our newsrooms and, and changing that model at all? I mean, because we seem to be addicted to this kind of constant, like, new thing, new thing, new thing. And we're not really giving... We do give context, but you have to kind of, like really follow the news to, to get that context. If, if you're just getting the, the tweets on your phone, you're only going to get the, the headlines. Yeah. Um, actually, I don't think we should change that uh, because I think it's a good opportunity for a lot of young writers to kind of get their feet in. We see the traffic metrics, and if you're going in there just to see the quick hit, people don't often want to read beyond too much further beyond that anyway. I think there's another venue for that. And just from a resources issue, you know, if you're diverting a team of reporters to do, you know, of you know, reporters who otherwise would be researching or looking into other things, if you're diverting them four times a day to write this stuff up really quickly, mm -hmm. I mean, that's not personally how I would like to use my reporter's time. Should we then, if, if Donald Trump or, or people like Trump are, are getting so much attention by saying outrageous things, should we then, as reporters on breaking news desks, be, be kind of countering that in a way? You know, if he says something that's inflammatory or, or clearly untrue, should we be publishing, you know, quick news like this is a reaction to the, I mean, if searching for the reaction rather than waiting for it to happen, if you see what I mean? Um, searching for the reaction. You know, I mean, if people react, we get, you know, you, you write it up, but, but if he says something that's deliberately racist or, or controversial, should, um, we as reporters quickly think of ways, wait, instead of waiting for the reaction to come in, kind of. I think we should add the same kind <coughs> we should treat him the way we treat other candidates in terms of adding the right context. Right. Right. So uh, I'm trying to think of an example. There was a story about Muslim travel ban or somehow I'm I yeah. can't remember what specific story this was, but you know, it, it was a story that referred to his temporary ban on Muslim travel and how, and you know, we had to add in a key graph there about Syrian immigrants and how actually the two aren't that related, mm -hmm. right? You know, and so I think it's important to add that kind of context right. in. Um, it doesn't, when you're writing up 250 words really quickly um, in five minutes or less, I don't know if that always makes it in there, but for larger, but it's the internet, so you can always update things, yeah. you know, so you have that luxury. I think certainly for paper stories, and I hate to hold different standards for both, because I, I don't think it's necessarily the right direction, but in paper stories, there's finality to it, so you always, you have to make sure before it hits a copy desk that that kind of context is in there. Mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, Trump will ultimately get the nomination, and if not, who and if he doesn't get the nomination, how is he going to react? Is he going to leave the Republican Party? What's going to happen? I really can't answer that. I'm sorry. I, as a political editor, I can't say who I think who I think is going to win. Yeah, but I will. I'll say this. I 
think if he, I'll answer your second question, um, I think he's been pretty clear he doesn't like to lose. So if he were to lose a contested convention or the presidential race at large, I don't think the Republican Party is, would be saying goodbye to Donald Trump anytime soon. I think he would continue to be a thorn in their side for, for a while. <coughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. Sure. Hi. Uh, my name is Michael. I'm a student here at Penn School as well. Great. I have a quick question about, um, so you talked about how we don't know very much about what preferences might look like. So I'm curious whether you think the media has been either too negative in terms of portraying what that might look like, or too positive or exactly kind of neutral about it, because in many ways, uh, in my sense at least, the media tends to focus on what is the most radical, the craziest thing he says, but there's a lot of kind of what he stands for that aren't as crazy possibly, mm -hmm. but they don't get coverage. So I'm, I'm curious as to whether in the way in which it's couched, you think it makes it look to be a lot more negative than it really is, or more positive than it really is? So the only times I would really see this play out was actually when he was in debates, mm -hmm. um, because that was one of the only times people would really press him on certain things. I actually thought two of his best answers in debates were the one to Ted Cruz about New York values. Mm -hmm. That was a great answer. And then he had an answer, it might have been the same debate, about um, corporate tax rates. Mm -hmm. That was really smart. And, you know, a few people tweeted, oh, you know, this, and a few business publications wrote it up. But I think that's an example where, you know, maybe that could have, you know, people could have delved into that a little bit more. Um, but I will also point back to Reader Appetite. Uh, you read a story about corporate tax rates, and there's just not a huge, unless you're a business-focused publication, there's not a huge Reader Appetite for, for something like that. I have a question. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm Pei, uh, I'm <coughs> from uh, Belfort Center, I'm from China, and from Chinese per perspective, actually, Trump played a very smart um, media strategy and tactics uh, that's not because he borrowed some ideas just such as Great Wall from China. <laughs> um, but, but How I, do I, people I, react, <laughs> by the way, to that over there? I'm curious. It's, it's, actually, we, we think it's, it's, it's totally different, and, but, but it's very interesting, actually. Uh, <coughs> now I think Trump is also very popular in the media, but if he won't become the, 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 a real serious uh, 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 candidate, I think uh, maybe he will change the, 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 the strategies on media and change some narrative. So is there any possibility that he will change at a later stage of this uh, primary election uh, to get the nom nomination? Uh, there, I think there is a great chance. Donald Trump has shown he is not afraid to change his mind. He, for example, had three different positions on abortion in 24 hours. So um, try writing that up. Uh, so it's, uh, I think it's highly possible he could change but, in but his what, tone. What the potential impact if he, if he changed his narrative and lose the, the, the uh, public awareness and popularity of the most part from the, the... I think that's a great question because you have this population that is so devoted to him, no matter what he says, <coughs> right? Like, what they're so loyal to him. But what happens if he does, if he is the nominee and he does moderate his tone? Do they stick by him through that in real time? You know, obviously, it hasn't bothered them that, you know, for example, he at one point uh, supported the assault rifle ban, right? That obviously does, that doesn't bother to them now. But what if he were to change his position in front of their eyes in a general election? And I think the choices for those voters at that point is they do they show up or do they not, right? It's not like they're going to defect those voters or such. I, 
won't speak for all of them, but 99% of them are such hardcore Republicans or Trump supporters who are not going to become Hillary supporters, but do they just not show up? Please. Hi, I'm Sean. I'm a student at the school. Um, I, I kind of addressed it with you know, Trump changing his mind three times in, in one day. Could you kind of address the pressures you feel as an editor trying to edit a story like that to not kind of absolve it or do you kind of gloss over those sorts of contradictions but not, you know, make it overly positive? So it's actually not that hard um, because you see it often when candidates, when other candidates not named Donald Trump mess up. Like, you know, one of the first things a candidate for office does after they've messed up is usually try to correct themselves. Donald Trump actually might be an exception to that rule, usually. Uh, so you just, you know, you post what you have, and when they clarify, you write that they have since clarified, of course, making sure you say that they said this thing earlier as well. You know, I think it's not, especially in the digital age, that it, it, it's incredibly straightforward. So. One more. Yeah, so I can I ask you one last question? I know sure. it's an interesting number this week. Uh, Obama's ratings have gone up. Do you think there is the devil you know versus the devil you don't know? Or are they saying, hey, better what we have than what we might have? That was an interesting number because Obama hasn't said anything on any particular subject recently. Why would you guess that? So I think part of it is the economy, which, as you point out, is recovering very unevenly. but. You know, if the economy on the whole, unemployment rate is down, people feel good, I think that helps. Uh, the other thing is Bush was kind of an outlier, but you remember at the end of Clinton's eight years too, he was, he was pretty popular as well. Uh, so I think there is a certain sense of people in the less. His approval, what? What about 27%? George W? No, uh, Bill Clinton. Oh, Cl Clinton. Clinton was, yeah. Yeah, Clinton. yeah, George W. was obviously yeah. terrible approval rating when he left office. Um, and then Bill Clinton had a, a much a much higher marks when he left office. So I think there is part of, you know, Bush being the exception there. I think there is part of a you know, sense of nostalgia. I think, I think general voters, voters feel like it's coming to the end. If they don't know what unpredictable thing is ahead, they might be more likely to say they support the president. Plus, also, I think, amazingly, the course of social issues swung totally in Obama's favor over his eight years of office, and we're kind of seeing the result of that in a lot of ways. That's right. You become more of a world newspaper. I'm thinking of Spotlight, and the state on the other hand, is there some uh, sort of drive to put the on the um, I think, huh, I guess the question is compared to what? I mean, we don't, like many newspapers, we don't have foreign bureaus like we used to. Our uh, only bureau on the Globe side is in, is in Washington, D.C. Um, but I would reply that with the Internet, aren't we all world news organizations, right? Isn't this journalism democracy? Everyone, if someone in Singapore can access the Spotlight series, like someone in Waltham can, maybe we're, maybe that's the way it goes from now on. You don't, it's a different kind of market, different kind of publication. Yeah, please. <clears throat> what stories 
cabbage covered because of all the ink spilled on Trump, 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 glorious Trump, 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 Trump. Oh gosh, what kind of stories? Oh, part of my job is I have a, do you know the app Wonderlist? I have like a list of story ideas and like, you know, you always try and get to them. Um, I think, let's see, what's been, that's a good question. So what's been undercovered? Um, you know, part of this whole, part of the whole phenomenon of covering Trump so much, I think the flip side of that is because in the Democratic primary, Hillary Clinton has been covered so much over the last 15 years, uh, with the exception of the email situation, which is sort of newer in her political career. She has been covered so much. So I think that, I don't want to say one led to another, and I certainly don't think that's the case at the Globe, but I do think, let's say, a relatively, what people thought at least in until October was going to be an uneventful Democratic primary mm -hmm. led to a lot more coverage of Trump in some ways. <clears throat> Um, what stories, though? You know, I think any, I think we can always talk to people more. I think we can always just get out of the office and talk to voters more and get in their heads <coughs> more. Um, I think we were so lucky to be able to do that in New Hampshire because it was right up the highway. Um, I think that's something that I, I wish we could continue to do more of, just getting out there and talking to people like we did in Pennsylvania last week. Um, but... You know, the Trump behemoth, I think, sometimes makes that more difficult. So you don't have to accept the premise of my question, but <clears throat> so, you know, I think Trump has rewritten a lot of the kind of the rules of politics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether they'll be permanent or not, I think that's an open question, mm -hmm. right? But <clears throat> I wonder if he's forced a rewrite <clears throat> of some of the rules of journalism. Um, my sense is that over the last six weeks or so, there's been this kind of attempt on the part of the mainstream media to bring Trump down, to be part of the effort to undermine the Trump candidacy. And I would put in that category that whole section uh, in the Sunday Globe. Uh, but what, if that's so, if you buy that premise, you know, the press is kind of giving up the pretense of fairness and balance and kind of in some ways kind of putting its finger deliberately on the scale. Uh, first of all, you can disagree with the premise of that as to whether they're, they're doing that or not. But if you agree with that, uh, what do you think about that in the context of kind of the way journalism has traditionally seen itself not putting the finger on the scale? Well, I don't think when we sit around and we brainstorm story ideas, you know, we never sit down with the objective of, oh, let's take down Donald Trump today. You know, that's just not how journalists think. No, we look for good stories. No, no, but I'm, uh, you know, but, but you can see a lot of the editorials, the tone of a lot of the news stories. I'm talking about the press generally. I'm not talking about the Globe sure. particularly. Um, there seems to me to be a concerted effort to kind of weaken this candidacy as substantially as possible on the part of the press. Having helped, in part maybe out of guilt, right? <laughs> having, having helped create uh, this bandwagon, right? So, but that certainly doesn't fit with kind of the traditional norms and the way that the press kind of describes its role in this process, that you're not, mm -hmm. you're not there to weigh in on one side or the other, right? Right. And one thing I 
would have been willing to say maybe two months ago mm -hmm. or maybe January is that a media general capital and media was overhyping the notion of a contested convention, mm -hmm. which some might perceive as anti-Trump, mm -hmm. that notion, because they wanted to cover it, right? It, you know, that's a really great story. Um, but mm -hmm. while I would have said that in January, it looks like there's a more than 50% chance that's probably going to happen now. Mm -hmm. So I can't, I can't even, I can't even say that's, that's true now, yeah. that they weren't overhyping it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's not media driven that he lost the Wisconsin primary or that he's losing these delegate battles in Colorado and South Carolina or that his campaign manager was charged uh, with, with simple battery. Um, that's kind of unprecedented for a campaign manager working for a front runner for president. I think those are all things that show he has had a rough couple weeks. Uh, I don't I don't think it's it's media driven in that we wrote about it, but it's all extremely newsworthy to me. Okay. So, um, sure, thank you so much. This sure. has been thank great. You. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.